0: Hello, welcome to PT Snacks podcast. This is Casey, your host. And if you're listening for the very first time, welcome. But what you need to know is that this podcast is meant for physical therapists and physical therapist students who are looking to grow your practice and your fundamentals, but in bite-sized segments of time. And so with this episode, we are going back to the shoulder, um, but we're going to narrow it down a little bit more. So in episode 21, we left off talking about the shoulder, about how to start forming working hypotheses based on what the patient's sign and symptoms are so that you can start narrowing down what physical tests and special tests that you would want to do to diagnose their shoulder pain. Because by no means do we want to sit there and do every single special test in the book because one, your patient's going to hate you, and two, you're probably not going to figure it out. So let's be a little bit more methodical about this, right? So we are going to dive down a little bit more into certain shoulder diagnoses. The topic of today is more so on rotator cuff tendinopathy. Okay. So with this, I'm going to get on my soapbox here for just a second because while physical examination tests and special tests are meant to help reproduce signs and symptoms that help you to diagnose shoulder pain, there are some downsides. For one, there are a ton of shoulder special tests out there. Like every time that I've looked up a different research article, there's been a different number. And how do you research accuracy with so many different options? Also, research sometimes has different definitions for what a positive test is. So some will say it's positive if it's weak. It's positive if it's pain. It's positive if it's both. But if you're not consistent, are we really testing what we think we are? Remember, validity is when a test tests what it claims to test. So another factor, sometimes a research article that is putting forth a new test or it's a validity test, they will report their validity as a a better performance than when later studies try and replicate that same study. On top of that, there's not really always a gold standard that's been established for all diagnoses. I mean, what are we using? Are we using imaging? Well, we know that imaging doesn't always correlate with symptoms, right? And so if we're comparing a special test to what they have on imaging, how do we know that that's the tissue that's actually aggravated right now? So... Don't neglect the other aspects of your exam. This is not meant to scare you off on doing any type of special tests, but I think it's important to know why different special tests are positive rather than just memorizing the tests on if it's painful or not. So don't neglect the other aspects of your exam. You know, screen out the other pathologies. Make sure there's no referred pain coming from somewhere else. Take a look at their other side. Don't just zero in on the side that hurts, but compare it to what their normal is. Look at their active range of motion, their passive range of motion, strength, endurance, and whatever else is relevant to that patient. Do they do a lot of overhead work for their job? Great. Why don't we find out a little bit more about what that looks like? Or let's say they're a pitcher and you know that is a full body movement. So do we need to check out other joints as well? Everything is connected, right? Now, the reason why we're narrowing in on rotator cuff tendinopathy is several reasons. So for one, it's one of the most common causes of shoulder pain out there. And that's probably because it's used as an umbrella term for several conditions. Um, Rotator cuff tendinitis or tendinosis, shoulder impingement syndrome, these all kind of fit under the same bucket. And it's often treated conservatively. So we're probably going to see this in our clinic, right? well, that is if you're doing outpatient ortho. Um, but others, other populations see this too, so I think it's important to keep in mind. And it is important for us to diagnose these because we want to prevent this from progressing into something that can be worse. Um, there's also a pretty good test item cluster with this, so we'll cover that in a sec, but In terms of causes of rotator cuff tendinopathy, it's multifactorial, right? We can't always attribute pain to one certain thing. Our body is more complicated than that, and the timeline can be more complicated too. So it can be from extrinsic mechanical compression, like for example, a a narrow subacromial space, or it can be from tendon overuse or overload, like repetitive overhead activities, or some combination of the two together. So in terms of who we see this in, we will typically see this in people who are aged over 50 years old for intrinsic ideology in the working population. Um, That's not to say it's just in these patients, right? Because overhead repetitive activities are in younger populations too. But the reason why is that in ages above 50, we're looking at the tendons, there's usually less ultimate strain, load, elasticity, and overall tensile strength. And so they're going to be a little bit more susceptible to injury. Other um, other populations, you'll see this more in diabetes. We know that hyperglycemia affects the tendon collagen cross-linking and reduces the proteoglycan content. Um, it's been linked as a risk factor with cardiovascular disease and then also arthritis. Keep in mind, though, they're there's not a whole lot of large studies that look at these risk factors, and so you should always, when you're looking at research, take it with a grain of salt and play devil's advocate. But for the sake of this episode, we've defined rotator cuff tendinopathy, what that can mean, what it can, can be caused from, and who we see it in. Great that patient's in front of you, but what are you looking at? Keep in mind, there it's normal to have a certain amount of compression and impingement. With overhead movements. It's not like the body just has a bunch of extra space. It's just a matter of there are certain things in place that help that compression to not cause injury. So it is important to look more into the cause of the pain once you're getting to treatment. Like, are you noticing they have weird movements because of pain? Is it soft tissue tightness? Is it muscle strength or activation imbalances or muscle fatigue? How is their thoracic posture looking? Um, All great to keep in mind. But going back to our test item cluster on helping you to kind of rule this in or out, there are three tests that have pretty good values in our research. So there's the Hawkins-Kennedy test, the infraspinatus muscle test, and painful arc. So Hawkins-Kennedy is basically... Your arm is in 90 degrees of shoulder flexion, so out in front of you. Elbow is at 90 degrees. And then you, as the tester, internally rotate the arm of the patient. And it's going to be positive if it's painful. For the infraspinatus muscle test, the patient's arm is at their side, and their elbow is flexed to 90 degrees. And you're basically telling the patient to externally rotate against your hand. And that is going to be positive if it's weak or painful. Painful arc, which sometimes you'll catch in the subjective as well, is when the patient's asked to abduct their arm in the scapular plane, and it's painful between 60 to 100 degrees of abduction, but often gets better after 120 degrees. So if you've got all of these three together that are positive, they will have a post-test probability for this test item cluster of 95.5%. And their positive likelihood ratio is 10.56. If they have two out of the three, they're going to have a 91% post-test probability. And then their positive likelihood ratio is 5.03. There's a big equation that goes into likelihood ratio. And if you're a little rusty on research, that's fine. But basically, a positive likelihood ratio is the probability that a patient with the disease tested positive for the disease. Now, post-test probability, it basically tells us a person's chance of having a disease after the test is formed. So it's really good for these to be good quality. And obviously, we can go over more research terms in the future, but I don't want to get too bogged down for now. Just know that this test cluster does pretty well. So, great. We've done these tests. We're now trying to synthesize the patient history, the patient in front of us, our evidence-based practice, our clinical expertise, and we're trying to figure out why this is happening to the patient in the first place. What are things that we can control and what are things that we can't? Because the things we can't control, we've got to educate the patient on. So we build realistic expectations. The things that we can control, let's get on top of that, right? And so this might be things like, hey, why don't we modify activity until we can ramp up to original volume? Do we need to restore motion um, if they have some sort of deficit? Do we need to strengthen the rotator cuff? All that to say, by the time that you're done, basically what you should know is basic general definition of rotator cuff tendinopathy, the test item cluster that we use for it, and then also how to take research with a grain of salt. So thanks for listening today. If you haven't already, go hit follow so that you don't miss out on any episodes. And if you would be willing, write a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps me out. Email me at ptsnackspodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com or find me on Instagram at ptsnackspodcast. Um, I love hearing from you guys and you guys have great episode suggestions. Sometimes I pull the audience on, hey, what do you guys want to learn more about? So if you want to be a part of the community, Join the community. And if you want to support the show more, tell a friend that you think would benefit from listening to it. Or if you'd be willing to support monetarily, great. There's a link below at Buy Me a Coffee, um, where even just donating a dollar helps me to cover my overhead for this podcast, making it happen in the first place. But at the end of the day, this podcast is not meant for me. It is meant for all of us to grow into better clinicians and better help our patient and still be able to, you know, have time to be with our loved ones and and do what's important for you. So thank you for listening as always. And until next time.